Church, we are uh, continuing through the book of Galatians this morning, and we got all the way through chapter 1 last week, so we're going to start with chapter 2. Uh, so I just want to kind of do a review to, with you guys, kind of where we are to this point. Thus far, you know, we've learned uh, that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Galatians. It's a letter uh, to the Galatian church, for primarily for one purpose and one purpose only, that sole purpose of being getting them back on track to return to the true gospel, the true gospel that he had originally preached to them and that which they had originally received. Paul's gospel was very simple. It was very, very simple. Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation. The idea, the teaching that Christ died for our sins, that he was resurrected, defeating uh, sin and defeating evil, and all they had to do, all they had to do, all we have to do is simply receive that divine and that beautiful gift. We don't earn it because there's no way possible that we could ever earn it. But what happened in Galatia is a lot like what you see happen very often everywhere. It, it's happened throughout the centuries, throughout the ages, throughout Christianity. A lot of us have experienced that. We, we experience these church atmospheres that um, even though that gospel was there, that gospel was just, that gospel was just a little bit too simple for them. It was just a little bit too easy for them. Y'all know what I'm talking about? It was too graceful. It was too easy. So what happened is some, some, of the, some folks came along after Paul had planted this church. Um, I didn't tell you their name. They were, they were called the Judaizers or the Judaizers. So if y'all hear me use that term, that's the group that I'm talking about. It's this group that came in after Paul had established this church. And they essentially started preaching a different gospel to the Galatian church. And the church started embracing it. For them, for the Judaizers, Judaizers, however you want to pronounce it, accepting Christ's atoning work wasn't enough. You had to believe in Jesus, yes, but you also had to follow the law of Moses, which we also refer to in the church as the Old Testament, uh, as, the, as the commandments of the Old Testament. I told you there were 613 of those. Good luck following them. It was a Jesus plus gospel. It was a Jesus plus gospel that took the redeeming work of Christ and it cheapened it by making salvation, by making our relationship with God contingent on our ability to follow the law as if anybody could ever actually do that. One of the main laws that you're going to see that's being addressed through, uh, throughout the book of Galatians is, is, is circumcision. This was, a, this, was a Jew, this was a law that, 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 um, that required folks to be circumcised if they, if they were to be holy, basically. It was a sign of holiness um, by Jewish standards. New Christian converts essentially were being told that not only did they have to believe in Jesus, but that circumcision was also required as well in order to receive that salvation. So what happens is the Galatian church starts embracing this Jesus plus gospel. And Paul begins his letter, like we started with last week, saying that he is absolutely amazed. He is absolutely astonished that they had turned away from the true gospel which he had taught and had now accepted what he flat out refers to as a perversion of the gospel. Paul had a lot of detractors among this group, by the way, among these, these guys, called, these folks called the Judaizers. He had a lot of detractors. They questioned his authority. They questioned his teachings. So kind of like we talked about last week, what happens in the beginning there in chapter 1, Paul reminds the Galatians, first of all, that he didn't receive the gospel from a human being. He didn't receive the gospel that he was preaching by flesh and blood or through flesh and blood. He received the gospel that he was preaching directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself. 
Paul had had this incredible, this incredible firsthand experience with Christ that turned this former persecutor of Christians into one of Christianity's greatest advocates. And then what happened, as we learned last week, is that he spends three years learning about the gospel in the presence of the risen Jesus himself. We tried to wrap our heads around that because Jesus is already dead, right? Jesus already ascended. No, 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 folks. One of the teachings of the church is Christ is alive. Christ is alive. So Paul had spent three years in the presence of Christ himself learning this gospel. So where we're going in chapter 2 this morning is we're going to pick up kind of where we le- exactly where we left off last week. And, and Paul is just continuing his story. As he's writing this letter, he's, he's continuing his story. He's continuing to write his testimony. Um, this is not going to make a whole lot of sense to you, to be honest. But we're going to come back and we're going to revisit it and try to make some sense of it. So when we pick up in verse or chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul is continuing basically to defend himself is what he's doing. So he writes, starting in verse 1, After 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Take note of these, take note of these places and names, by the way. Jerusalem, Barnabas, Titus. And we took Titus along with me. That's going to be very important as we, as we move along this morning. Barnabas, Titus, and Jerusalem. I went up in response to a revelation. Then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. But because of the false brothers and sisters, because of false brothers and sisters secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Jesus Christ so that they might enslave us, we did not submit to them even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might always remain with you. And from those who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, what they actually were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those leaders contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the with, for the uh, gospel for the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter making him an apostle to the circumcised also worked through me in sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of the fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. Word of God for the people of God. I know that's a lot of information, and that's a lot of story. That's a that's Paul's backstory. You know, it, it, new new movies come out for these days, and about four or five years later, they, they do a prequel. So this is essentially Paul's this is essentially Paul's prequel. He's backpedaling and he's reminding some folks of what happened in his life after he had received Christ and how when he started preaching, when he started meet, when he met the uh, these other apostles who very who knew Jesus very well personally. So he's just kind of back. And he's he is defending himself, and he is giving us he's giving them. His credentials, because these people are pre- these people called the Judaizers are preaching against him, basically. So that's really confusing what I read, just read, but I'm gonna try to make some sense of it. There are two verses here that jumped out to me, though. Verse three is one of them, and I'll just you don't have to go back to it, Sandy, if you, if you don't want to. But <clears throat> verse three basically said this: Paul wrote, "Even Titus was not compelled to be circumcised." even though he was a Greek. And then the second one that jumped out to me was verse 6. And it reads this, From those who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, 
those leaders contributed nothing to me. Let me tell you what that means real quick, because that doesn't sound a whole, that doesn't sound, that's not very, uh, we, we don't know what he's talking about, basically, in this, in this particular translation. But another translation puts it to us like this. It's more straightforward. What he is saying is that leaders in Jerusalem, these original apostles, basically, these people who were leading the Jerusalem church, the leaders in Jerusalem did not add anything to my message. That's a much more straightforward translation, I think. The leaders in Jerusalem did not add anything to the message that I was preaching. So let's just review where we are one more time. Everywhere Paul went, everywhere he went, he preached this gospel. He preached this good news of grace alone, through Christ, in Christ, through faith alone. False teachers would come behind him, questioning Paul's authority, teaching him that Paul's gospel was not enough. Instead of the gospel of grace that proclaims what God has already done for us free of charge through Jesus Christ, the false teachers added we had to do more, effectively mixing the true gospel with Old Testament law. It was a Christ plus works, Christ plus commandment keeping anti-gospel that Paul very strongly calls a perversion. Those false teachers had convinced the non-Jewish converts to be circumcised as part of that, as part of that uh, perversion of the gospel. So what happens? Paul first responds to their accusations towards him and towards this false gospel they were preaching by saying he's, his is the only authentic gospel, again, because it was taught to him through Christ himself. Now, in chapter 2, he says that the leaders in Jerusalem, some names you're probably going to recognize, James and Peter, affirmed that gospel that he was preaching. And I think James and Peter probably would have known what they were talking about. So here they are, very much affirming this gospel of grace by faith in Christ Jesus alone. They're affirming what Paul is laying down, right? Not only that, but he also had this guy named Barnabas. And I'll go back to Barnabas, who was back there in verse 1. That's why I actually told you guys to remember this. We go back to this guy named Barnabas, who was with Paul while he was meeting these apostles in Jerusalem. Who was he? He was a Jewish convert to Christianity. And he had witnessed the absolute outpouring of the Holy Spirit during an event where many, many Gentiles had received Christ as Lord as a direct result of hearing Paul's gospel. Not only was Barnabas a witness, though, apparently that same gospel that, pre that Paul was preaching was endorsed by none other than the Holy Spirit. So, one more time. This is Paul's rebuttal to his accusers in a nutshell. He says, my gospel is the only true gospel for, for these reasons. One, it was given to me straight out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. Two, it was affirmed by the other apostles. Three, it was endorsed by the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe me, ask Barnabas. He was there. And then there's this other guy that I asked you to remember, and his name was Titus. Brings you back to verse 3 that I mentioned earlier. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Now remember what the Galatian church is teaching. Who was Titus? Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile. He was an uncircumcised Gentile. In other words, he was a non-Jew uh, convert to Christianity. Paul had taken him with him, with Paul, to Jerusalem where he met the other apostles. Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. What does that mean? It means that those other apostles who were preaching the gospel, who knew Jesus firsthand, spent three years with him, 
They did not compel him to be circumcised, nor did they add anything to Paul's gospel. So his gospel of faith, of grace, in Jesus Christ alone was being affirmed time and time and time and time again. That's essentially, again, what Paul is laying down in these first couple of chapters. He's backing himself up. He's backing himself up. But at the same time, Let's not give these Judaizers too hard of a time because, let's be honest, this Jesus plus gospel has existed throughout the ages. And in all honesty, it's probably one that most of us have been taught and that most of us have believed. I've told you guys during the first week of me, of me preaching on this subject that I am guilty of believing it and I am guilty of teaching and I am guilty of preaching it. It's not heresy, but it is definitely a perversion that takes away from the awesomeness of God's relentless, radical love and grace that is poured out through Jesus Christ. Now stick with me here, because this is where people start getting real squirmy. Okay? But I'm going to tell you what a Jesus plus gospel looks like today. Okay, here's, here's what the Jesus plus gospel looked back in, back in Galatians. Follow, believe in Jesus, follow the Old Testament law, and get circumcised if you're not circumcised. That's odd to us because circumcision is not an issue for us, right? But let me give you a few examples of what a Jesus plus gospel might look like today very often. Have y'all ever heard this said or something remotely close to this said? In order to be a good Christian, and I use that in quotes, in order to be a good Christian, as if, as if there was a bad Christian. In order to be a good Christian, or in order to be a real Christian, I'll start with the simple one. You have to adhere to the Old Testament commandments. Well, we all know we can't do that. In order to be a good Christian, in order to be a real Christian, you have to adhere strictly to the teachings of Jesus. Y'all know that I have preached the teachings of Jesus over and over and over again. I believe in it with all my heart. I also know there is no way this side of eternity that I will ever, ever, ever be able to live up to them. In order to be a good Christian, in order to be a real Christian, you must engage in good works, outreach, social justice initiatives. In order to be a real Christian, in order to be a good Christian, you must dress a certain way. You must not dress a certain way. In order to be a real Christian, you must stay away from certain types of movies or certain types of music. I remember when I was coming up in the 80s and 90s, that was a big, big deal in the, in the Baptist church when they were burning rock and roll records and cassette tapes. Here's one for you. In order to be a good Christian in the United States, you must vote Republican. <laughs> I say that, y'all, to lighten the mood a little bit. But I've known people personally, man. I, I've known people personally. I told Kevin this one time, uh, they say, you know, you can't, you can't be a Christian and vote Democrat. And then the other person says, you can't be a Christian and vote Republican. Well, one of them can't be right. And these are preachers out there proclaiming this stuff, so I'm just, I'm just saying. Now, with, you know, with the exception of that, of that last one, you know, all the other things that I've mentioned are, are good things, right? I mean, you know, Old Testament law. You know, uh, modesty, stuff like that. You know, staying away from stuff that probably, you know, messes up our minds a little bit. They're not, that's, they're not bad things, but are they requirements of the gospel? Are they requirements of the gospel? Absolutely not. We will never, ever, 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 ever get all of this stuff right 
on our own. We will never come close to following the Old Testament commandments. We will never come close to fully following the teachings of Jesus. We will never be able to do enough good works to make ourselves righteousness, righteous. And if you are stubborn like me, you have a really hard time giving up your propensity to watch television shows and movies that you know probably aren't spiritually beneficial for you. I told our Sunday school class, I remember Vanita was there, I can't remember who else, who else was there, I know Sandy was there. Um, but I told our Sunday school class like two years ago that I've got, oh gosh, y'all are, I'm so going to get fired. <laughs> I've got a, I, got, I have a propensity to watch horror movies. I've always loved horror movies ever since I was Parker's age. Now Parker's starting to watch them, and, 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 I, and I don't like them anymore. But um, I've always enjoyed watching horror movies. It's just, it's, just, it's just part of me. And I told my Sunday school class that a couple of years back here at Bemis. You know, I've got this, fond, this fondness for scary movies. And I know that it's probably not the best stuff to be letting into my head. Yet two years later, I'm still watching them. Especially in the month of October. Does that not make, does that make me not a Christian? I mean, I know it's bad for me. I know it's not healthy for me. I know it's not spiritually healthy for me. Yeah, I still do it. Here's the thing. I can't stop watching scary movies within my own willpower. Church, I can't control my eating habits within my own knowledge and willpower. We all know that that's a sin as well. Overindulgence is a sin all day long, whether it's food, whether it's anything. Overindulgence is sinful. Church, I don't pray even remotely as much as I would like to and as I know I should to with my family. I am not as compassionate with some of you guys as I should be sometimes. So I'm going to ask you again, though, do these shortcomings of mine, do these sins of mine, let's just call it what it is, do these sins of mine make me a lesser Christian? Do these make me not a Christian? No. Because Christianity is not about me. Christianity is about Jesus. We like to make it about ourselves. Christianity is about Jesus. And when we make Christianity about us and what we do, what we don't do, about our abilities, our inability, whatever, we stop making it about Jesus. And we are fooling ourselves, church, if we think for a minute that our performance adds anything to our salvation or that it is a requirement of God's love and acceptance. This is 500 plus years of Protestant theology. Salvation, sanctification by grace alone. In Christ alone, through faith alone. Christianity isn't for those who think they have it all together. I'm sure y'all have been to some churches where, where, where piousness ran amok. I certainly have been. Christianity is not for those who think they have it all together. It's for those who are perfectly aware that they don't and that they never will. Jesus says that in Matthew 5, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in something we call the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, 
Some translations translate that to happy or the poor in spirit. A lot of times we want to treat that as if it's a commandment or a virtue. It's not. It's, a, it's not a directive. It's not a, it's not a commandment. It's not a virtue. It's a direct statement. Happy or blessed are those who are poor, poor in spirit. Those who realize their imperfections. Those who know they will never measure up. Those who know their fallenness, their brokenness, their sinfulness. Those who recognize their need for God, for Christ. Those are the ones who are truly blessed. There's always two questions that come up when you start preaching, when you start talking about this subject. This is kind of what I'm going to end with. <clears throat> but this always happens, always happens. No exceptions. Two questions that always go hand in hand whenever we talk about what we've been talking about today and what we've been talking about really over the last three, week, three or four weeks. You have probably, many of you have probably asked them at some point over the last several weeks. I have certainly asked them myself, and chances are I will continue to ask them. <clears throat> but they kind of go something like this. Does this gospel of grace, does this gospel of unconditional love, mercy, and acceptance, does that mean that we don't have anything to do? Does that mean that we don't have anything to do? Or does that mean that we can do whatever we want? Paul's going to address that question a little bit later in Galatians. He also addresses it back in Romans. But those are always two questions that come up. Let me tell you this, first of all, church. If y'all have asked yourselves one or both of those questions over the last several weeks, congratulations, because the true gospel is starting to get a hold of you. And the answer to that is yes. There is something we must do. And that is trust in Christ. Trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone at all times through all things. Trust in Jesus for your just. We, we trust that we're justified, right? We trust that we're reconciled to God. Trust Jesus for your sanctification as well. What is saying? What's that big churchy word you're using? Growth. Trust Jesus for your spiritual growth. Trust. None of this, you know, that I've been talking about is is by any any way meant to be a slight of the law or the, or a slight of the commandments or a slight of the teachings of Jesus. Trusting in Jesus shows reverence for these things. Christ has come. Christ has fulfilled the requirements of the law for us. So the best way to honor the commandments, the best way to honor the law, the best way to be holy, if you will, is to do nothing but place our complete trust and faith in Christ alone for everything. And here's what happens when we do that, folks. When we put full, complete faith, this is where I'm going with this, I hope y'all hang with me, and I hope, and I hope that, I, that I speak this rightly because it, it's, it's such a game changer. When we put our full, complete faith in Jesus, those questions change from does this mean that we don't have anything to do? Does this mean to whatever, does this mean do we get to do whatever we want? Those questions change to what will we do when we let Jesus take the lead? What will we do? Because God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit 
is always the initiator. Always the active agent in any growth, transformation, whatever you want to call it, we, we might experience. We are the passive receivers of God's grace, and we add absolutely nothing to it. Let me give you one quote that speaks to this that I, that I came across this week. <clears throat> Author wrote this. He said, Paul's, for example, pull up verse 10 again, Sam, if you don't mind, if it's not already up there. The author wrote this. He says, what Paul says in verse 10 today about remembering the poor is an indication of what I just talked about, about us being the receivers of God's grace, about us being the, the, the passive receivers and of God, that God, is Jesus, is always the active agent. Does that make sense to you? You know what I mean by active agent? Jesus starts it. God starts it. God is the source of any change that happens in our lives, any direction. And it changes those questions to what do we have to do? Do we have to do all this stuff? It changes those questions to what will we do? Again, Paul's, what Paul says in verse 10 about remembering the poor is an indication of this. As a Christian, as one who receives, you will do many, many things. You can't help it. You can't unless you're resisting it, I guess. You can't help but to change when Christ is initiating that stuff within you. Not that you have to repent or confess. You're going to find yourself wanting to repent and to confess. You will start forgiving the people that you swore you would never forgive. You will give to the poor, and you'll find companions along the way that you thought you would never choose to engage with. You will also sin, and you will also self-justify, and you will daily demonstrate a, a need for a Savior. As a Christian, you will do many things, but to be a Christian, you only have to do one. Trust in him and trust in his grace for you. What a great quote that was. You know, Jesus taught a lot of things, but and, and a lot of times people want to pit Paul against Jesus. I don't see it anymore. I, I understand the arguments, but I don't see it. I don't see it. Let me tell you what Jesus says about this, and he speaks directly to this. He speaks directly to this. You think Christ was... You think, you think Jesus didn't know that we were incapable of following all of this lofty stuff that he was teaching us? He knew. But he summed it up like this. Here's how growth works. Here's how change works. Here's how transformation works. John chapter 15, Jesus says this. He says, abide in me. Remain however you want to translate that, trust in me. And I will abide in you. Now here's the kicker. Those who abide in me and I in them will bear much fruit. Those who trust in me, those who I abide in, will bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Pray with me.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, this morning for just so, so very much, God. You, you've made it so simple, God, and we just, we, we try so hard to make it so difficult, so hard. Help us to trust, God. Help us to lay ourselves aside. Help us to quit pitting our own egos up against your good and your perfect will and your good and your perfect way. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.